The electoral map of Illinois has changed drastically over the last 20 years. Democrats now dominate in large cities and suburbs, while Republicans control small towns and rural areas. The same trends are playing out nationally as well. What's behind this shift, and what does it mean for the future of the two parties? We'll talk about that with two researchers from Southern Illinois University on this edition of CapitalCast. Hello and welcome to Capital Cast, a regular podcast of Capital News Illinois. I'm Peter Hancock. As recently as the 1990s, Illinois counties were fairly evenly distributed between Republicans and Democrats, but not anymore. Over the last several election cycles, Democrats have lost a lot of geographic territory, but they've gained voters by winning big in the big cities and suburbs. For Republicans, it's been just the opposite gaining geographic territory, but losing population. The same thing has been playing out nationally. In fact, Republicans have only won the popular vote in a presidential race once in this century, but a look at the national electoral map shows them dominating in huge swaths of the country. Two researchers at Southern Illinois University have written about this. John Jackson is a visiting professor at SIU's Paul Simon Public Policy Institute, And John Foster is a professor emeritus of political science at SIU. They've just released a research paper titled Biden, Trump, Durbin, and Taxes, the 2020 elections in Illinois, that puts the 2020 election into historical context. Both of them are with us today to talk about that paper. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. Thank you for having us, Peter. So everybody talks about how polarized the nation is today. Ever since the 2000 elections, I think people have talked about red states and blue states. And generally, blue states like California, New York, and Illinois tend to be dominated by large urban populations. Red states like Oklahoma, Wyoming, and the Dakotas are predominantly rural. And every four years, the presidential battle seems to come down to a handful of counties in a small handful of purple states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Can you talk to us about how this happened? What's going on here between the urban and rural divide? Well, Peter, that's a great introduction and summarizes the whole paper very, very adeptly. And this is uh, Professor Jackson. I'm sorry. We, of course concentrated in part one on what happened in 2020. And there, as you know, uh, Biden and Durbin won 14 counties. Uh, Trump and Curran won uh, all of the rest out of 102 counties. Uh, Biden won 57.5% of the popular vote uh, and Durbin won 55% of the popular vote. So that graphically demonstrates uh, territory. Yeah, it looks like a Red Sea with a few blue islands in it, 14 blue islands to be exact. But if you look at the population, Dick Durbin and Joe Biden won going away. And that's because they won uh, eight out of 10, 12 out of 15 of the largest counties in Illinois. Uh, So we use that then to look back at retrospective. We contend that the 1990s, a good place to start because in 1996, Bill Clinton 
won 64 counties in winning Illinois. <clears throat> he won 57.5%, uh, I think it was, of the popular vote. Uh, the rest uh, went to Robert Doe. And more importantly for an Illinois audience, Dick Durbin won 51, exactly half of the counties against Al Salve. So Durbin went from 51, his first race, down to 14, this current race. We think that demonstrates uh, where the, when the change came. And of course, we then go through a number of other races and outcomes in the 2000s. Uh, and uh, then we talk about why did that happen. Yeah, and why why has this happened? Why is there such a big <clears throat> urban-rural divide? Uh, Professor Foster, you want to jump in here? Well, at uh, one time, there really wasn't. Uh, if you looked at our maps and looked, in at least in Illinois, and you go back to the 1990s, as uh, John said, uh, um, good, good part of southern, at least southern Illinois, deep southern Illinois, was was Democratic. Uh, Bill, Bill Clinton did, did very well here. Uh, middle Illinois has always been Republican. I guess that probably goes back to Abraham Lincoln. But uh, deep southern Illinois was Democratic up until uh, around 2000, 2004, it starts to swing. Uh, reasons for it, um, um, it's um, uh, union strength, I think, dropped in Southern Illinois quite a bit. That I think that made a difference. Uh, the descendants of past union members, I think a lot of them decided down inside they were really Republicans or they were gonna be Republicans. Um, at, at this point, deep Southern Illinois, of course, is very, very hard red. I don't imagine any Democratic candidates have any chance at all down here. Um, we talk about in the paper, some talk about rural resentment, uh, the feeling in rural areas that they're being left behind, they're being treated unfairly. Um, uh, in a couple of our other papers, we I think we show pretty convincingly that uh, while the, the private sector probably has a heavily abandoned, at least deep Southern Illinois, um, uh, state government hasn't. Uh, uh, Deep Southern Illinois is doing better, uh, getting more tax dollars back than than they're sending to Springfield by quite a bit, by you know almost three to one. And I would divide the argument up into sort of the cultural factors and variables, and the economic factors and variables. Some of which John's just covered on the economic side, but the cultural wars really started the realignment. Uh, you can go back ever how far you want to go in history. You could go back to the New Deal coalition, which was inherently unstable, or you could go to Harry Truman and Hubert Humphrey and the walkout of the 1946 uh, convention. But I would go back to Lee Atwood and Richard Nixon, uh, where Lee Atwood went to Richard Nixon and said, I can help you realign the South and we will use God's guns uh, and uh, guns, God's God and gays, and yeah. we will bring about that realignment. And Richard Nixon bought it, it became the Southern strategy, and that started the whole thing. And those are all three cultural issues. And I think the cultural issues have driven it, Reagan in uh, 1980, and the RNC adopted abortion, and that was not a partisan issue up until that point. They used abortion and 
pro-life, pro-choice from then on. And I think that's particularly the explanation in the rural areas. Uh, God, guns and gays uh, really still exist in modern form. Guns really hadn't changed that much at all. But anyway, the economic factors have sort of cut both ways, but Democrats haven't been able to win enough on the economic side on things like minimum wage or pro-union or right to work, those kinds of things, uh, to keep up with the losses they've sustained on the cultural war side. And you talk about uh, the decline of the labor movement, which is kind of interesting. In Minnesota, the Democratic Party is still called the Democratic Farm Labor Party. But it's farmers and blue-collar workers who tend to be showing up most for people like Donald Trump. Um, how did how did that come about? Do you think John lived in Minnesota? I'm going to defer to him on that one. <laughs> well, when it was farmer labor, I guess in those days it, it was really a populist party, uh, and uh, uh, kind of I guess small farmers and again organized labor uh, was never a huge amount of organized labor in Minnesota, but. Um, well, union movements declined. There's no question about that. Industrial jobs have declined, and uh, in Southern Illinois, the certainly the the coal uh, UMW, the, the mine workers union, uh, hardly exists anymore. Uh, it, it it was a major player in politics at one time. That's um, uh, uh, you know that that's certainly a nationwide phenomenon, I, and I think. Uh, um, uh, you know, I think a lot of it gets broken down on racial lines. You also spend a lot of time in this paper discussing uh, the 2020 presidential election. Uh, of course, we're having this conversation against the backdrop of congressional hearings that are looking into the events that led up to the January 6th assault on the Capitol, <laughs> which really kind of showed how starkly this country is divided. Right. Can you Put that into perspective for us, and what do you think that portends for 2022 and 2024 elections? Well, I think it's huge, as these current uh, hearings are showing. Uh, when I talk political parties, I talked about, in the first part of the course, the importance of the election of 1800, because that was the first time one party had peaceably given up power so the government could change to the other party, Jefferson versus Adams. We did that successfully then, and sometimes called the revolution of 1800. We did it successfully every other time up until 2020. We did not do that successfully in 2020, and these hearings have shown just how close we came to chaos in the street and a constitutional crisis. Uh, and always before we moved on from the last election. Sometimes people like Al Gore and John Kerry basically sort of disappeared after they lost. But in this case, we have not moved on. Uh, two thirds or so of the Republican party believes that Joe Biden was not legitimately elected president. Uh, their leader, Donald Trump, successfully purveys uh, and runs on that platform, as do many of his endorsed candidates. Uh, this is a real problem for 2022. 
and is an even bigger party for 2024 because all of a sudden the most basic rules of the game are no longer in place and no longer widely supported. So you see this continuing for some time. Uh, oh, absolutely. It'll, it'll certainly continue as long as Donald Trump is the huge Im, uh, impact on the Republican Party that he is right now. And that part will last through 24. So who knows after 24, depending on the outcome then. Okay, one of the other things you talk about in this paper, uh, in addition, we had a presidential race and a U.S. Senate race, but there was also a ballot initiative to uh, go to a graduated income tax system. Uh, it was Governor Pritzker's top priority uh, when he came into office. Um, and you even point out that uh, the Simon Institute did a poll uh, at the, what, February of 2020, found that 65% of Illinois voters favored the idea of a graduated income tax rather than the current flat tax. Uh, And yet it lost at the polls. And we didn't see that same kind of geographic split that we see in the other races. Uh, What was happening there? Well, that's a great point. And not only did we do that poll, we had done, I think it was four before that over time and it consistently showed 60 to 67 percent in favor of a graduated income tax Uh, if you would have thought it was a toss-up going in uh, and i think that would have been a stretch i think 65 67 percent favored the general idea but the campaign made all of the difference Uh, The Pritzker message did not get successfully purveyed to the voters. Uh, The anti-tax sentiment, distrust Springfield, distrust politicians message that the Republicans fueled by Ken Griffin money uh, just won the day. And it's one of those cases where the campaign shows that they can make a difference, particularly if they tap into that resentment, as John mentioned earlier, that's already there, the suspicion that's already there. Republicans tapped into that quite successfully. Democrats and Governor Pritzker failed to be able to counteract it. Yeah, let me, let me just add, a, sure. I guess, a couple real quick points to that. One is I uh, I did think all along that uh, that poll data was a little soft, maybe a little tricky uh kind of asking generic questions about tax hikes and it was and yeah. I, I saw those numbers 60 65 but i i i always thought it was i thought at the time that that could you know you could lose 10 points on that real real quick uh with any sort of campaign at all that uh uh implied that uh you know the, the government's going to raise your taxes and and um and of course the, when they did the campaign they were very careful to or the campaign implied it really was going to raise everybody's tax. And in, in, in reality, it would have only hit about 2 3% uh, the way that law was written. But they said, well, if they can raise the tax on 2 or 3%, they can get the R97 later. It's completely misleading, of course. The other point I guess I'd make is the rules on that amendment, and I've kind of forgotten them, but didn't you have to get 55% of those voting, something like that, John? You may remember that rule better than I do. It, yeah, I think it's either 55 counting one way and 60 counting the other, depending yeah. on 
but it Turned probably it, yeah. you probably needed close to 60 percent yeah. actually voting yeah. to get that thing to go and it uh and and that's a that's a big number okay. uh, even in Illinois, you know it's hard to get 60 percent of people agree on something uh, do you agree with Senator Durbin, uh, who said shortly after that that he thought Michael Madigan uh, weighed heavily on that election and uh, sort of symbolized the lack of trust that they right, have? Yeah, I mean, Republicans always ran against Michael Madigan and Chicago, kind of one word almost. And, uh, uh, you know, do you, you know, they throw a question out, do you want to give Madigan more money to, to play with? And, no, <laughs> that's a, okay. that one had a. Well, uh, I've been in the state for a long time. Republicans have been running against Chicago and our Richard J. Daly or Richard M. Daly, or then Michael Madigan ever since I've been here. Uh, the only question is, will it work again this year? Because they're running against Michael Madigan again this year, even though he's out of power. So this will be an interesting test of how long live the, down with Michael Madigan theme will really work. Uh, surely this will be the last one, but it's very much a part of this campaign this year. So a few months ago, I had one of your colleagues, uh, University of Illinois Chicago professor Dick Simpson on the program. Uh, he was talking about political polarization, and his theory is that economic polarization sort of breeds political polarization. Uh, do you agree with that? Is, is part of this a result of, you know, economic uh, inequality in Illinois and the country? Well, the, the, the rise of polarization, I think, does track along with the rise of income inequality fairly well. Um, but, of course, it gets complicated in that there's, you know, the um, Republican Party, which, uh, which which does very well among well-off people has also attracted a huge number of very low-income people. I remember when that, uh, you know, just before the graduated income tax um, um, uh, vote, I, I, do, I do a lot of cycling on back roads around here, and uh, uh, there were a lot of, uh, uh, the way that was written, your, your state income tax wouldn't go up unless you made, it was about a quarter million a year, uh, you would ride the back roads and you'd see the no graduated tax signs in front of a house that uh, uh, you, you, you figure there's, there's, you know, the people live there, take them five, six years to make a quarter million dollars. And, uh, um, but, you know, they, they clearly tapped that. They were able to tap that. Uh, so what do you see going forward in uh 2022, 2024. I mean, you also talk in your paper about how the COVID-19 pandemic weighed very heavily on the 2020 race, uh, more so than the economy. Uh, the pandemic is has subsided quite a bit uh, since then. Uh, and now we have run, runaway inflation and $5 a gallon gasoline. Uh, is this um, dangerous for Democrats? Well, you undoubtedly know the rule. Everybody who keeps up with politics knows the rule, and that is the party in the White House almost always loses seats in the House and the Senate in the first midterm election. Uh, there are a couple or three exceptions, but almost always makes it almost a law. Uh, 
there was a short time there when I thought if the nation got out of COVID successfully, uh, everybody would be relieved and pick up and give some credit to the administration for a job well done, particularly on things like getting the vaccines out. That disappeared and a new variant coming along and new struggles against COVID. But more importantly now, that was obliterated by the fight against the economic damage that COVID had done, which was why they did what they did on both fiscal and monetary policy uh, in terms of trying to make that transition and trying to have uh, <clears throat> an no inflation, but good recovery on the jobs front and the economic front. Uh, and it looked like it was going to work for a while. I think uh, there'll be debate in economic circles about whether the Fed waited too long. I think they probably did. And all of a sudden we got this inflation. Uh, there is no way Democrats can survive this and particularly gas at price that it is without a real bloodletting for them uh, unless things are turning and looking better by November, which is at least possible. I would add one footnote to that. I, I do think highly, highly likely Democrats lose control of the House. I mean, they only have a six-seat majority. Uh, I don't think if you go back to some of the major losses, major collapses, first term, though, uh, 1994, Bill Clinton's uh, first term uh, uh, wasn't uh, 2002. It was one of those exceptions John mentioned, but Obama's first term, 2010, uh, Trump's first term, 2018, you know, the, the, the White Party had the White House had major, major losses. Uh, the thing it's easy to forget, though, that each one of those major losses two years before, they'd done extremely well. Uh, they picked up, you know, Democrats under when um, Clinton was first elected, when Obama was first elected, Democrats picked up about 40 seats. Then they turned to lose, you know, then they turn and lose about 50 or 60 uh, after the, uh, you know, the midterm election. Uh, Joe Biden didn't have that kind of a wave. Uh, Democrats lost. 15, 16 seats, John, in 2020? Yeah, I think uh, that's right. Uh, that's almost unprecedented that a new president comes in, but his party loses seats in, in the Congress. That's almost unprecedented. And now, now for the, the one thing, of, I guess the one advantage of that is for Democrats this year, they, they did not win a whole lot of close seats that are there to be lost this time. And, um, um, and then, of course, the, you know, the, with with map skilled map drawing uh there's not that many competitive districts anymore anyway i expect democrats to lose seats i don't think they're gonna lose 30 40 seats though which is what happened in some of those other major first term wipeouts well does yeah, i agree that, side, that's good that, point. of course only a third of the senate seats are up and i think there's more republican incumbent seats up than democrats i think republicans have to defend more seats john and i did a talk on this mm -hmm. a year ago and i'm uh, I had the numbers right in front of me one time, but uh, Senate, I think, is less certain. I, there's some there's some places that. Do you think that trickles down to the state level in the General Assembly? Illinois it General could Assembly. in some. It could in some of those marginal districts. I would say, 
the vulnerability there is in the competitive districts in the suburbs. Uh, Democrats have done very well in those suburban competitive House uh, and Senate seats for the Illinois General Assembly, and they could they could get hit there if it's a wave election, uh, and I think it's there and in those marginal congressional districts, which would be uh, the new 13th, which was supposedly designed to be competitive, leans Democrat. Uh, it's probably gone. The Bustro seat, uh, probably gone if it's a Republican wave election. Okay, well, we're going to leave it at that for this edition of Capital Cast. Capital Cast is a production of Capital News Illinois, a statehouse reporting project of the Illinois Press Foundation with funding from the Robert McCormick Foundation. I want to say thank you to my guests, Professor John Jackson and John Foster of Southern Illinois University. Until next time, this is Peter Hancock saying stay safe and thank you for listening.